Welcome to the Sales Development Podcast, your go-to resource for all things pipeline and revenue production in the tech sales world. Technology marketing, sales development, sales, and revenue operations have combined to create the go-to market engine fueling the success of SaaS startups and established companies alike. Each week, the Sales Development Podcast dives deeply into the strategies, tactics, people, processes, and technology that fuels the revenue machine. The Sales Development Podcast is brought to you by Tenbound. Get more free resources, insights, and intelligence today at tenbound.com. And be sure to like and subscribe on YouTube. Hello, 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 everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Sales Development Podcast. I am very excited to have you meet my guest this week. We've already got to know each other. He's an amazing, amazing guy and just wrote a book that we want to dive into. Ian Campbell is the CEO of Nucleus Research, adjunct professor. He's a foster parent for several different pets, and he just came out with a new book called The Value Sale. So Ian, where do we start? David, hey, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, I've been fostering Huskies lately, and I can't say that there's a positive ROI from that, but it is fun and full of adventure, so it's been a good time. I mean, that's why, and I forgot to mention, you're a pilot, I'm assuming, and you're burning. Is that a good ROI? (laughs) There's also no way to justify that either, but yeah, I've been a private pilot for a while, and I'm here now in South Florida in the Miami area, so I've been uh, flying around here, which is rather hectic airspace, so that's been a good challenge. Okay, one justification I hear, though, is you're saving so much time with us schmucks who are waiting in line, and we can never bring anything and all that stuff. You're just getting right there. Sure. I will agree. And also, I I sort of did a back of the envelope measurement of the fuel economy, and it's not terrible. So given that it's a straight line, 200 miles an hour, and it's 14 gallons or so an hour, it's sort of as good as an SUV, maybe. But I'm working up numbers to try to justify it. But it's great. In-flight entertainment, probably not as good. But yeah, it's a lot of fun. Definitely. And I know that ROI has been a real focus of your work for a long time. Nucleus Research has been going strong for over 20 years now. Tell us about how you work with clients and where your philosophy came from. Sure. So, yeah, I've been in the research business for a long time, and I was at IDC for many, many years before founding Nucleus Research. And think of Nucleus like any other firm, like a Gartner or Forrest or any of the other research firms, where we provide advice to vendors, people who sell technology, and to end users, people who consume technology in some way. But our focus is really around value. Is it worth it is the question that we answered. What I like to say is we don't like or dislike anything. We hate everything equally. So we only care if it delivers value or not. We don't care if you're top of some list. We don't care if you're the biggest company or the smallest company. What we care about is if somebody spends money on you, do they get value? And and I'd argue that if we look at any startup, anybody that starts a new company, At the root of that decision to start a company is the feeling that they could do it better. And by better, meaning I can provide a better product to my client at a better price. Every company really starts out with some value proposition in some way as the root of why they started. So those small startups are only there because they think they're doing a better job. I'm delivering a better product at a better price point or giving you more capability. And when we look at value, we like to identify those new companies that are coming into the market that could 
deliver value. I, I like to think Salesforce being one of the first ones we found way, way back before the rest of the folks were even paying attention to them. Now, I think they're a little bigger than startup size. But yeah, it's those kind of folks. And when they come early into the market, we're able to identify and help show. So for vendors, it's about how do they prove the value of what they do. And for end users, it's about how do I build that business case and prove that the decision I'm making to purchase a product and go forward with a project is the right decision to do that's going to deliver value for the company that I work for and really keep folks from getting in trouble by showing that they're doing the right thing. Yeah. And it's tricky being a buyer these days, right? Because there's a lot of glitz and glamour and marketing, and you're trying to figure out where is the value in this that I'm going to potentially purchase? And how can I be sure of that? We want case studies or we want some sort of proof before we move forward. And do you see that? Yeah. And case studies, I mean, that is absolutely the gold standard. For us, we do hundreds and hundreds of case studies and we've published almost 2000 case studies by now. So if you go to our website, nucleusresearch.com, you can search on uh, case studies. We also have a great AI tool where you could say something like, what are the typical benefits from uh, Salesforce? And it will generate all of that for you and list all the different reports that justify those numbers. But if you're a marketing person selling a technology, or if you're somebody looking to buy technology, you can talk to an analyst. And I have a bunch of analysts here. You can talk to an analyst and say, what do you think? Or you can read a bunch of case studies. And what I like to say, it's a lot better to see how someone else achieved value from something than to hear some analysts talk about how you might achieve value. Those tangible stories and those tangible ROI case studies, and like I said, we do lots of those. That's our typical research approach. Those case studies are solid gold for both vendors who are proving what they do. And if you're trying to justify a business case, you've got 10 pages of a business case, but boy, if you can staple on another six or seven case studies of companies just like you that have achieved benefits, that's going to be a lot stronger for that decision maker to say, sure, let's go forward, than just a business case that you've maybe had some consultant deliver. Case studies, absolutely the gold standard. And I think you hit on something where the company's kind of got to look like me. And it's a similar size, similar industry, and I can see myself in the case study versus, oh, here's a case study that's sort of a just a generic value proposition. Yeah, and that's exactly right. I'd like to point out, and we do a lot of sales training, but what I'd like to point out is we're not talking about benchmarking. I hate benchmarking. I love case studies. Let me tell you why. Benchmarking is, by definition, bad for everybody. A benchmark data point says that 50% of the people think it's too high and 50% of the people think it's too low, but nobody is on that benchmark data point. It's a bell curve, right? There's nobody actually on the midpoint. Everybody's either on one side or the other. If you say, well, the benchmark data point is 10%, for instance, then you know that people will say, well, that's too low or that's too high. But the natural reaction to anyone when given a benchmark data point is to say, how'd you get that? How does that apply to me? Why even go down that route? Why not just say, here are three other pharmaceutical companies just like you, airlines just like you. Here's three other mid-sized manufacturing companies just like you that have used our product and were able to achieve these kind of benefits. And that way the customer can identify and say, oh, these two apply to me, these others don't apply to me. And they can start to get an idea of what kind of benefits they'll achieve. And let me give you a little bit more context on that. There's only three things that you can do as a vendor for a customer. I can either increase productivity, reduce cost, or as a byproduct of those two, I can increase your profitability. That's all I can do for you. 
I can't do anything else. So everything that I do falls into those three buckets. All I'm doing is either increasing productivity, reducing cost, or increasing profitability, which was really a byproduct of the first two. That's it. If you're a customer and you start to look at those case studies, say, oh, I see how they increased productivity for their employees, or I see how they were able to reduce cost. Now you're making it easy for them to be able to consume that information and say, oh, I can identify with that. I see how the benefits are going to apply to me. If you've got a case study that's well-written that sort of highlights those big points and allows the customer to see how that could apply to them, makes it a lot easier for them to then use that as a foundation for their own business case. It's interesting because when you're talking to customers, a lot of times they ask for the latest benchmark or the KPI, and how do you affect that as a vendor? What would be your response to that? Yeah, and I know people do. It's sort of a default response. I don't know what else to ask for, so I'm going to ask for benchmark data. Here's the trick. I want to sound smart. <laughs> yeah, right? I don't know what else to do. So I'm going to ask you for, do you have benchmark data? Usually with a deep voice, you're at a conference table, oh, do you have any benchmark data that supports that? No, that's complete garbage. Nobody would do that. That's silly. Two or three people have said that to me over the last couple of days, but go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, it's complete garbage. Absolute garbage. But the reality is you don't have any benchmark data. It's no good benchmark data. Yeah, an example I use is here I am in a building here in Miami, right? And there's an architecture firm next to us on the same floor. If I told you that the average commute for my employees to my office is 30 minutes and the average commute for the architects to get to their office is an hour. Does that tell you that you should work for me and not work for them? What the heck are you doing? It's complete garbage. The better way to answer a question like that, if you're ever presented with a, hey, what's the benchmark data? The best way to say it is a range. That avoids any kind of pushback. What you would say is, we have information from our clients that show customers like you achieve between, for instance, a 5% to a 15% increase in productivity. Let me show you some case studies that show those kind of numbers around that range. Now I've set a stage. What I'm really trying to do is go one standard deviation plus or minus. I'm encompassing as many people as I can. So that's sort of a psychological thing. But they're not going to come back and say, how'd you get that? Because I'm handing you case studies. They're not going to come back and say, well, the end number is only 1,000. I want to see an end number of 3,000, which is the typical next step when someone looks at a benchmark data point. But what you've done is you've taken the conversation from an absolute number to a, how does it feel for you? Where do you fit in this range? Another good example is if I, and it's what we call a third order benefit, it's a productivity gain. But if I told you that, if I asked you, how much more productive are you with your mobile phone? You'd look at me and go, beats the heck out of me, I have no idea. If I told you that the benchmark data point that we have from years ago is roughly 10.3%, you would say, whatever, sounds good. But did I help get you further along in building the business case? I didn't. I know that you're more productive with your mobile phone. Everybody listening is more productive with their mobile phone, right? And it loses productivity as well. But in general, you get more done by having a mobile phone than by not. Okay. For every person, I could say, are you at least 3% more productive? Sure. Could it be 6%? Yeah. Is it 15%? That feels high. Could it be 12? I'm right there. What I've done as a salesperson or as a marketing person is I've sort of walked you up that curve and said, where do you fit? Because you're unique. I gave you the range, 3 to 20%, for instance. And then I walked you up and said, what feels right for you? And the thing about building a business case is the only thing I can guarantee is whatever number you come up with, you're never going to achieve that number. That number will either be too high or too low. It's always going to be a guess. That's how finance people treat this. We think the ROI from this project will be 300%, but it's probably going to be plus or minus 20%. That's going to be 250 to 350. What it will end up, 
being will change based on things that happen. A business case is always going to be roughly a guess. So if I guess with a number you feel good about, especially if you feel like, I know I'm getting at least 8% more productive productivity with my mobile phone. Could be 10, but let's use 8. Let's see if this business case works. And that closes the deal. You've won. Nobody sells business cases. Everybody sells a product. You're not framing this thing. So use the business case as a way to get to the closed deal. Don't try to make the business case perfect. Make it as credible as possible, not as perfect as possible. And that's really the key to being successful with a business case. Well, it's interesting because I've noticed in my business that a lot of finance people have started showing up on the calls, especially right at the end. And it's, who are you? (laughs) You know? And I've struggled to talk with them, really, because in the past, it's been the go, 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 you know, technology cycle. But now it's like everything's let's put the brakes on, let's analyze this. And those are the people that are coming up and saying, well, what are the benchmarks and what are the KPIs? And it's been a challenge. I'll give you a trick for that. We know what we can do. We can increase productivity, reduce costs. Let's focus on those two. If we look at all of the case studies we've published and we look at the benefits that we've calculated, there have never been more than five. In any deal or any situation, there are two things that drive the deal, three things that support it. That's it with a decision. There are one or two things that really drive what you're doing. There are two or three things that support it. And after that, the stuff is too small to make a difference. So we go with the CRM system. I want to deploy a CRM system for my salespeople. Why? I want to make my salespeople more productive. Well, that's it. That's the number one benefit. What's the number two benefit? I want to ensure consistency in the way they do documents. Okay. With those two alone, you're going to close the deal on your CRM system. I could also say that Because we've got a new CRM system, our sales reps won't have to do as much reporting. Because they don't have to do as much reporting, they're going to be happier. Because they're happier, I'm going to have lower turnover, and my HR people won't have to work so hard to hire new salespeople. Well, yeah, but forget that. Sure, I'm sure it's a benefit. It's so tiny and it's off to the corner that doesn't matter for the deal. I focus on those one or two big benefits. Now I know what those benefits are. Let's back up and look at the sales funnel for a second. You already know what a sales funnel looks like. You know it's bring in a lead, qualify the lead, align a proposition, whatever the stages are in your particular sales funnel. Conceptualize that sales funnel. Now, now think of the sales funnel as having two sides. One side is the side you already know, right? It's got all the lines on it. The other side is a different side. We're going to call that the finance side. And we're going to build a business case on that side. Like any sales funnel, we're not going to go to the next step. We've solved the step in front. So I'm going to go back and forth, one side to another. The finance side has three steps. Just three. First step is paint the big picture, all the different ways you deliver value. We're a company that delivers a CRM system. We're qualifying the lead. We're going to talk to the customer about all the different ways we deliver value. And this is my champion, person who's reaching out before we get to the finance people. Okay, paint the big picture. How do you deliver value? Now I'm getting further down in the funnel. Now you start to use those case studies. Show how other people like them have achieved value. So big picture, all the different ways I do the value. The mid picture is other people like them that have achieved value. And then the final point is how will they achieve value? I've already started now talking about the value message at the beginning of the conversation, rather than having that finance person jump in at the end and say, I need a business case. And why you want to do that is because that finance person didn't just come out of the blue. That person already talked to the business, to the champion and said, why are we doing this? Now, that person is going to say, because we want a CRM system. 
That's not what you want them to say. What you want them to say is, because we want to increase the productivity for our salespeople. Once I start talking about the value message of the first conversation, by the time I get to building that business case, they've already identified those two benefits. You've already got case studies that are talking about those two benefits. And now all I have to do is build a business case. But I've warmed everybody up to it. By the time I get to the CFO, the finance person jumping in, we say, okay, let's take a look at the two big benefits. These are increased productivity and better document content management, fewer mistakes on contracts. Those are the two that you're going to use. Here are the case studies we've used. Here are some typical ranges we expect. Given your size, your company, and the number of salespeople, here's what we see. Now you're having a much better conversation. And the person standing next to you is your champion of the company because you've already educated them about those benefits. So think about ROI, a business case, not being a point in the sales funnel, but a parallel message. It's on the other side of the sales funnel. And you have to walk through those steps, those three steps at the same time you walk through the steps in the sales funnel. If you do that, you'll get to the bottom and your champion will be able to make the case for you. You won't have to do it. Boy, okay. This is... This is how you ended up being in your position because you rattle this stuff off immediately. It's the value sale that you've encapsulated in the book. It's so easy. The funny thing, and you know, I've taught salespeople for a long time, and I get a lot of salespeople that are afraid of ROI. Like ROI, uh, you know, I don't know. It's a calculation. Like you only need to know two things: ROI and payback. I'm going to give you another trick: payback is stronger than ROI. I know we all talk about ROI. Everyone talks about ROI. ROI's got great marketing. Everybody loves ROI. But payback, I can feel. If I told you that this project will cover its cost in three months, you know what that is. You feel that. You feel the three months. If I told you that this project has a 400% ROI, you sort of intellectually know that's good, but it doesn't have the same weight. Now, think about that finance person in the elevator. The finance person looks over and says, why are we doing the CRM system? We're going to increase productivity for our sales reps, and it should cover its cost in the first three months. Sold. If you're pushing a metric, think about pushing payback before you push ROI. Forget about all the others. There's a whole bunch of other stuff, IRM, PVR. If you want to read more, some great articles on thevaluesale.com, which is the website for the book, and talk about IRR and MPV. But the short answer is all of that stuff is garbage. Ignore it. I've got detailed reasons why, but it's all fake. The only thing you need to look at is ROI and payback. But you already know ROI. And salespeople don't realize that you've been using ROI all your life. Anytime you walk into a bank, you give them $100, they give you back $5 a year. What's a 5% ROI? You already know what that is. You can probably guess that $5 a year, it's a 20-year payback. I got that. You already know these concepts. You just haven't realized that it's not that difficult. And it's something that you need to weave into the discussion. I like to say it's almost like flying an airplane. You want to think it's difficult, but it actually isn't. Flying an airplane, dynamically stable, you've got a yoke. It's, it's relatively straightforward. Landing, radio, there's a whole lot of other complexities to flying an airplane. And actually, flying an airplane is relatively straightforward. Anybody can pretty much do it. It's not as complicated as it seems if you just take a look and you're taught that, well, this is actually pretty easy to talk about. So don't be afraid of ROI. It's a really easy topic. And we can sort of design the book to make it not a finance book, but a sales book. How can I use value to drive somebody through the sale? Another good example I use with salespeople is, if I told you, the book starts with this example, if I told you that you could make money raising baby alligators in your bathtub, would you do it? And of course, everybody goes to the same thing. I've done this on stage on thousands of people in the audience. They all look and the same thing goes on. Everyone goes, oh, that's funny. Then they think, and everyone gets the same thing. How much money am I going to make? And I say $5 million a year. 
sold. Everyone's in. 10 million for the few holdouts, right? There's a number above which you're buying baby alligators and raising them in your bathtub. And there's a number above which is slightly higher, where your spouse thinks you are the smartest person in the world, even if that's the only bathroom you have, right? You have to go down the street for the next year. It doesn't matter. That is a genius idea. And what I did was I showed you the value and you pulled yourself through the funnel. I told you nothing about the product. I didn't tell you they're fun to play with. I didn't tell you to make, make great pets. I told you nothing about the product. I just showed you value and you bought instantly. And that's really the key. The more I can bring value into the message, the slippier, the slippier the funnel becomes, the easier it becomes for the customer. I'm not, I'm not I'm going to say the challenge yourself. I'm not pushing them through the funnel. I'm letting them pull themselves through the funnel because they see that the end for them is good for them. So if I use value selling, I'm going to be far more successful. And if you look back in deals that stalled, they either stalled because you didn't build that value message or your champion didn't have a crisp enough message to articulate that internally. And go back to those two benefits. What are those two benefits? Do I have a crisp message around them? And can your champion talk about that when they're in the cafeteria, on the elevator, or walking out the front door? Say, oh, yeah, we're doing this because it will reduce our cost by 20%. Think about how can I crystallize that message so that that's the message that's getting across, not, oh, well, it's the number one product out there, so we should have it. That's not going to fly. Not today. I mean, this, I'm nodding. If you're on audio, I'm nodding like... (laughs) Seriously, because I've been in these situations for so long that what you're saying is so true. And I'm wondering if someone's more junior to getting into sales and they're trying to wrap their head around the value sale concept that you have in the book, where do they start? Where would be a good place to start to learn these skills? Yeah, there's some great stuff on the Value Sale website. And of course, I'd suggest the book, of course. But the most important thing when we do ROI work with salespeople, the most important thing is to get out there and do it. To take a look at the product you're selling, another challenge. I've done a lot of sales training for with, with vendors. And I go to the three-day sales event in wherever it is, Miami or Dallas or whatever, there's sales training. And it's always three days of features. It's always three days of somebody talking about what their product does. What are the features? How do you sell the features? Very Rarely do people spend time talking about the value points. So as a salesperson, the number one thing you can do is say, how do I deliver value for my customer? What are the top three things I do, top four things I do? Only two of which will be applicable to any particular deal. But what are the top three, four things I do? And then the other thing is, talk to your references. Sit down, take them out to lunch and say, not, do you like us? But looking back on how you used us, what value did you get out of it? What did it do for you? And see if you can start to frame that discussion around, did it increase the productivity for your salespeople? Did it reduce your cost? How else are you using us that delivers value? And what you're getting is so much intelligence from them that you can then turn around and use in your script as you sell to a customer. Your references are probably some of your best teachers. They're using your product. They know how you're delivering value because they they feel it. Another thing I like to say is, You may think you sell a screwdriver, but if people are using it as a paint can opener, then you sell paint can openers, not screwdrivers. So it doesn't matter what you think you sell. What you sell is what the customer is using it for. So get out there and talk to them. The other great advantage to that with the reference is the more you can crystallize that value message in their mind, the better they're going to be as a reference. The customer said, you know, I hadn't really thought about it, but you're right. Sales went up by 10% last year mostly because they're more efficient. That's great. Now, the next time you use that person as a reference, they're going to say, 
their product helped my sales go up by 10%, which is far more valuable than, oh, I loved working with a salesperson who was wonderful. That's fine, right? But they took us out to golf and their annual trade show is fantastic. We always do that in Hawaii. It's great. Yeah, it's not going to help you. You will be a well-liked but very poor salesperson if you do that. So you're much better off being a rich and well-liked salesperson. So try to do that. And marketing people, same thing. Biggest mistake I see with marketing people is they don't get out in the field. Walk out, sit with a salesperson, go through a deal from beginning to end, and figure out what the challenges are they faced. Talk to a customer about what they've achieved. You know, I've got a room full of analysts here, office full of analysts. Our analysts go to annual conferences every year. One of the most important things they do is when they're at lunch at one of these conferences, they talk to the customers. I know what we're hearing from a vendor. How are you using their product? How do you get value out of it? How does the product help you be successful? That intelligence is valuable and it's cheap. You've already got the customers. Interesting point. So if they're coming in and they don't have any case studies and there's nothing on hand and the marketing team is just giving them product feature sheets, you know, I don't care about the alligator. I just get the money. What should a salesperson do? I think what you're saying is they can go out and talk to the referral customers and really make their own case studies. Yeah, they should. I mean, you should always have a couple in your back pocket that are your own customers. So do that anyway, your own references. But it's either your product or your product is there because there was a hole in the market. And that hole in the market, remember we started with, it's there because whoever founded the company thinks they can do it cheaper, better, faster. There's something. And that something is usually rooted in, again, increased productivity for the customer or reducing their costs in some way. Just take a walk and think about it and say, why does the product that I'm selling exist? What is it actually supposed to do for the customer? Not the features, but what does it actually do? How does it deliver value for the customer? It reduces their cost or whatever it does. And then that's going to give you a pretty good idea of where you want to dig or how you want to approach your sales message. Or look at the competitors. How are your competitors selling? When they're successful, what are they talking about? Talk to some of the competitors. If you can, you use this other HR system. What's the value that that HR system's doing for you? And then take a look at yours and say, well, we're doing the same thing, but we're SaaS delivered. So because we're delivered in the cloud, we have lower ongoing costs as well. So we're going to increase the productivity of HR and also reduce your cost of IT department, for instance, where the other folks are on-premise. You can still crystallize it around those one or two points. You should probably have three or four in your back pocket knowing that only two are going to matter. The more you throw in the pile, the worse off you are. If you go over five in a business case, you've probably made a mistake. Two are going to drive it. The more you throw in, it's not going to work. And don't go for the highest ROI. Go for the most credible. So when that finance person is talking to you, if you have three bulletproof items that you can use, great. But if you pile on five more that are just tiny, you're not going to close your deal. You're just going to make a mess out of it. If you can make the business case around those one or two things really matter, do that because it's going to be far more effective than throwing as much as you can onto the pile and hoping that something is believable. Okay. And forgive me for ignorance, but when you say business case, what does that look like? Is it a written document? Is it a slide presentation or is it a conversation? Yeah. So business case really should start out as a conversation. And if there are sort of phases to a business case, the first phase is just, can I sketch out what those benefits are? And you should be able to do that on a piece of paper just over lunch. We think we're going to deliver a lot of things to you, but the top two things are this and this. Okay. Take each of those and then put a formula around it. Say, we think we're going to increase your sales productivity. All right. So I need to know number of salespeople, 
what their fully loaded cost is, and then how much I'm going to increase their productivity. Now I've got a number. Now I can go plus or minus, worst case, best case, whatever. But I've got a number. We're going to reduce your cost, which is how much are you spending now in IT costs for your current system? We can eliminate all of that. We've got an increase in productivity of 10% for 100 salespeople, for instance, and reducing your cost for your IT department. Now, I've got a bunch of other benefits, but those two are going to be the big ones. We're going to only charge you. Now let's look at the cost side. We're going to only charge you X a year. So you're going to save, say, 300000 a year, and we're going to only charge you 50000 a year. Feels to me like a pretty good ROI. Now I've sort of sketched out what that business case is going to look like without a whole lot of heavy lifting. If you need a spreadsheet to be able to do a real business case, you can go to ROITool.com, which comes to our Nucleus Research website, comes to a particular page. There's an Excel spreadsheet. Download that. You do not need to build a tool. It's free. Just take it. Throw the numbers in there, and it will generate ROI, NPV, all the metrics for you, direct and indirect benefits, all of that. In many cases, you're working with somebody that has to build their business case themselves because they've got their own framework and their own company. So all these people that create tools and use tools, okay, our AI product now, we just launched it, will actually generate most of a business case for you. All the text that you need, you just type in generate a business case for whatever it is, Canaxis, whatever product you want, then it will generate three or four pages of mostly text around market position and typical benefits. Okay, so you've got the text, you've got the numbers, you're likely going to have to work with their framework anyway. But now you've set up the conversation, you've set some stages around these are the main benefits, and you've sort of given a framework to calculate that. That is 95% of the effort right there. And you really haven't used a calculator at all. Yeah. And you're arming your potential champion to have something to talk about when they go back in. So they're really excited about working with you, but then they have to go sell it internally to five different people. And think about how much more effective they will be as a champion if they know that they're making a decision that delivers a positive ROI for the company. Behind the scenes, deals stall not because your champion didn't like you, but because they couldn't present it well enough to whoever was making the final decision. And you're never in that deal with a decision maker. You might be, but not really. That's a conversation that goes on behind the scenes. I've got a champion. That champion has to turn around to a decision maker. And that message is one that has to be real crisp and clear. The easier you make it for them, and the more clarity you give them around the value their decision will make for the organization, the more they'll stick their neck out for you. Because today, especially, you know, as things tighten, nobody sticks their neck out to spend a million dollars on a new CRM system unless they're sure that's going to be the right decision. Because two years from now, it doesn't turn out to be the right decision, and they're in trouble. For somebody to start to make a decision, they have to be real sure. Otherwise, they'll make a half-hearted attempt. There's no amount of features and functionality and great presentation that's going to give them more confidence to be able to stick their neck out than it covers its cost in four months. It covers the cost in four months is about the best thing that you could say, because then the person says, look, worst case, five months from now, we're still good. And it's that negative sale, that worst case. Just memorizing that line from now on, Ian. Yeah. It covers the cost in four months. So yeah, there you go. Five months from now, you can throw us away and you're still good mathematically. I mean, it makes perfect sense running a business. If you're going to spend money on something, you got to know with some clarity that it's going to come back to you in some way. And you have to be able to help the customers see that before they buy. And of course, with any business case, you've got to get the cost right. Are the costs going to increase over time? You can do what we call an expected case, expected case, worst case. Don't even bother doing your best case, but nobody believes best case. So do expected case, worst case. And that's a really good technique as well. Here's what we expect. We expect it to cover its costs in four months. But if all the numbers are wrong to the most we expect, 
then the worst case of that is 10 months. So it'll cover its cost in four months. Worst case, everything goes wrong, it's 10 months. Mm-hmm. I've sold that product. That's alligators. I've sold alligators all day by doing that. It is. And this is just to switch gears. I had a question. There's something called a total cost of ownership report. Is that essentially a case study, but it's just at a higher level with the ROI? TCO was great about a decade ago when people sort of didn't know what the cost would be. And and we see government folks uh, using TCO a lot more. I'm going to tell you, TCO is really, for the most part, a bad idea. We don't do TCO reports because TCO is really just the cost side. And if you think about it, a couple of problems with that. First, the easiest way for me to reduce the cost is to not do something. It doesn't cost me anything, right? So no decision has the best TCO. The other thing is what we found is that when sales reps bring up TCO in a conversation, they bring up the idea of discounting because I'll get a better TCO if you give me a better discount. So what we find is when salespeople talk about TCO, they start to face more discounting pressure. If they talk about value, I'm already giving you a 300% ROI. How could you want more money off? Is a lot easier than... Oh right, co-locos ownership is five hundred thousand a year. You want it to be four hundred thousand? Okay, let me see if I can cut my costs. It's not going to do any good. And TCO is just the cost side of the equation. I'm going to challenge you on TCO. There is almost nothing in life that you buy based on TCO. And if you think about it, you don't buy anything just based on cost. Everything you buy is based on your perception of value even a commodity item like water. You know, we all buy bottled water in some way. So when we look at a different spend money, it's free because we perceive the bottled water as having greater value. The only time people will only buy something will switch based on cost is when they're filling up the gas tank of the rental car before they drop it off at the airport. And then cheapest gas possible, I'm only driving two miles, I don't care. After that, even gas for your own car, you've probably got a limit where I'll go cheap, but you know, within reason of, you know, I'm still going to eye the gas stations. Does this look safe or not? Is it all right? But anything else, food, housing, clothing, you're not buying that on TCO. Think about it. We're coming to the holiday season here. Is the gift for your wife going to be based on TCO? A gift for your spouse? Probably not. You don't make those kind of decisions. So when we bring up TCO, it's really just saying, I'm just going to look at cost. And really, nobody sells based on that. You all, you all sell. Everybody sells based on value. And everybody buys based on maximizing value within a certain range where they have money to spend. I can spend between this and this for a car. I want to get the best car I can, given how much money I can spend. Not, I want the cheapest mode of transportation. Yeah, It's a value report that you really need to see. And it goes back to, does this look like me and my company? And can I see myself going through this journey with you to reach that value? It's really ROI. What's the return on investment I'm going to get? Yes. And that's the value question. That's the value number. Payback is the risk number. Payback says you'll cover your costs. and You can start breathing better after four months, but the ROI over the long term will be 300%. Okay. All right. So I have a lot of homework to do. So Ian, where can we get the book? I want to download the ROI calculator. What's the best way to learn more about this and connect with you? 
So take a look at the ROI calculator. Again, ROITool.com goes directly to our website. Go there, grab it. It's an Excel spreadsheet. It's open. Play with it. Play with it and get a feel for how it works. So definitely do that. The value sale is available on Amazon, so you can go there and grab that. I think there's an audio book up there as well now for folks that don't want to read it. But personally, I like being able to refer back. There's enough stuff in there that you may want to go back to and read someday. So I think the book's probably a better idea. But if you want to listen to it, it's up there as well. TheValueSeal.com is a great website. A lot of articles I have up there that go into things like NPV and TCO and IRR to much greater depth. IRR, internal rate of return in particular, is an absolutely evil metric. So if you want to learn more about that, it's great. And then, of course, I'm here at Nucleus Research. You can always send me an email. We're pretty friendly guys here. So Ian at Nucleus Research, send me an email if you ever have a question or a concern or you're in the middle of a deal, you don't know what to do, or somebody has come up with some new metric and you're stuck, give us a call. You don't necessarily have to be a client to work with us. Of course, we love clients, but yeah, reach out. People do that all the time. And I really love chatting with people and helping them through some of the nuances. And for me, it's satisfying when I see that they actually already knew the answer. They didn't realize they did. And most of you already do know the answer. You just maybe haven't applied it as much as you could, but it's not that difficult. I'm going to be over on your website (laughs) right after this. Really, thank you for your generosity and sharing your wisdom with us. We'll have to do round two because I feel like we just scratched the surface. I loved it. Really, hey, thanks for having me on board. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Sales Development Podcast, the only audio forum 100% focused and dedicated to sales development. Please be sure to subscribe to the show on YouTube and take a moment to leave us a review on iTunes. Your support makes our show possible. If you are struggling with your sales development program, contact us at 10bound.com for a no-obligation exploratory call. Again, that's 10bound.com.